Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Thanks for listening to the Jazz Joe Hall Show podcast. Today on the pod, hundreds of innocent international students are on the verge of being deported from Canada after being scammed. MP Jenny Kwan joins us. Plus, did Vancouver City officials know there weren't enough beds to shelter people booted from the Hastings Street encampment? And sportscaster Blake Price joins us as we discuss where the Blue Bloods of professional golf are chasing Saudi money. That's coming up on the Jazz Joe Hall Show podcast. Our Provincial Crown Corporation announced they're seeking feedback over the next three weeks from uh, taxpayers on what they should do with the Pacific Buffet. That, of course, is the all-you-can-eat food service, which operated between the Tawasson and Schwartz Bay route uh, pre-COVID. And from what I could tell, and I've certainly used it a few times, it was a popular service based on the long lineups, but it's gone uh, for a variety of reasons. And now BC Ferries wants to to hear from you, the public, in regards to what they should do with that space. Well, joining me now to discuss the issue is Global BC's legislative reporter, Richard Zussman. Welcome, Richard. Jazz, that's what I like about you. You are ready to move on a moment's notice when a big story is staring you at the face. You're ready to tackle it head on. You know, I would say the topics that we were going to discuss were probably weight here, uh, but I always believe this show is very accessible, and I try well, to be the man. Weight, Jazz, you get weighty if you eat a lot at the at the buffet. <laughs> that's so right. that's one thing. It can't, the, the, a buffet can be pretty weighty. It depends how often you go. We get very passionate about these things. So I'm a man of the people. I like to think so. Anyway. <laughs> So here's my question to you, first and foremost. Why get rid of the buffet? It's worked, some would say, based on the lineup, yeah. and certainly been more successful than, let's say, the ferry Wi-Fi or trying to convince BMW owners to turn off their alarms in that on the ferry. I mean, why are they getting rid of it? I've been thinking about this a lot lately because we broke this story a few weeks ago after my mm-hmm. conversation with CEO Nick Kim, and as you and I spoke about this at the time, but now it's officially official. Three big reasons. Staffing is one. The buffet took about 80 staff per day, so about seven uh, staff per sailing between Tawasson and Swartz Bay. And in a staffing crunch, that was far too many. The others was the fact it was a money loser, uh, lost about a million dollars a year. Hmm. Uh, And then the last was the idea of food waste. And uh, buffets all around the world are struggling with this. Uh, And that... um, also couples with financial loss, but it's larger than that, that there was an obligation there from ferries to feel that they were just wasting food uh, that could have been going somewhere else in the world. So it was those three factors combined. The fact that it was closed during COVID, it was the last thing uh, to be considered in terms of reopening. And when new CEO Nick Jimenez came in and looked at the books, he said, it is not feasible to think about continuing with this. So now we're going to put it out to the public and say, you know, we're going to do something new here. Now you provide us some feedback on what we should do with the space. Couldn't they just have done what every other restaurant has done in regards to, to rising food costs, just raise the prices by 20%, 30%? Yeah, they could have, but it doesn't uh, factor in those staffing challenges. And so hmm. uh, one of the things and I've been following this story all along, Jazz, I love the buffet. I have great <laughs> memories of it. Uh, I was a regular customer at the buffet when I would travel. So I had a vested interest in this story. And I spoke to some uh, people who worked on 
uh, BC Ferries uh, about eight months to a year ago. And they said the plan was to try to reopen ferries. They were looking at their staffing model uh, and they thought they had a way to reopen it by the summer. But ultimately, one of the challenges they were running into is they had this anomaly where people were coming into train to work at ferries, uh, going through the training period and then not coming back at the end and taking those jobs. Largely, ferries has corrected some of that. And these weren't just jobs in the buffet. These were jobs throughout the vessel. Uh, but the buffet was the lowest of the priorities for ferries. So they, the ferries wants to ensure they have staff to run all of their um, routes throughout the province along the coast. Uh, and uh, focusing in on a buffet and finding staff for that was just not a priority. So, yes, they could have raised their prices but would not have accounted for the dramatic staffing challenge they faced. So uh, the, the buffet is off, obviously, for the summer. Uh, I guess that space will be just used for customers, to uh, for tables just to sit and, and, and enjoy the view. No food, though. So this is the thing I really want to talk about. What comes next? Yeah. And there are so many options, Jazz, that you and I could talk about, about what the future looks like for the buffet. So in the short term, they're going to try to figure it out as a seating area with no food. But long term, this is the best part of the boat. And I'm already getting lots of suggestions on social media. And there have been things that Ferries has explored in the past uh, that have not... Uh, been so favorable, but maybe now people would be willing to consider. So some of those things that have been looked like in the past is a sports bar. Um, well, that could work. You know, yeah. wedding and private reception space and gym and spa service. But you and I can get creative. The, the listeners can get creative. You can put in anything you want here. So um, all of those options are sort of interesting to me. I don't know. What do you think? Uh, the gym and spa, first of all, the gym and spa service, you just need to hit the gym for about 90 minutes in between to Watson and Schwartz, right? That one came out of left field. The wedding and private reception space. So, like, this is when the ferry isn't being used. Is that what they're talking about? No, you could get married on board. You could invite your friends and family to ride with you from Tawasin to Swartz Bay. And if you want to pay extra, you could probably get that return trip too. Book it for three hours. And you can enjoy what some of the best views in the world through the Salish Sea and, and be hitched at the same time. How could you go wrong with that? <laughs> well, let's just hope you don't hit any rough waters along the way. I guess that's one way to look at it. That could this be a sp- metaphor. That could be a metaphor for the marriage. Smooth sailing means smooth marriage. Rough water means, you know, the other thing. Yeah, well, <laughs> the other one at the casino, I mean, you're already paying pretty high prices uh, to, to, to take the ferry. I guess whatever you have left, you can, you can, uh, you can play the slots if you want. <laughs> BC, BC Lottery can make its cut. <laughs> BC Ferries can't even operate a functioning arcade. I'm not <laughs> that is they true. can operate a functioning casino on board a ferry, but who knows? You you outsource that to lotteries, of course. So <laughs> the sports bar one is intriguing. Now, was it a glass of wine you could have on 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 the ferry at one point? You can now. Yeah. You can order wine, local beer. Um, I think that's what we're going to end up with. It's not going to be a full-out sports bar. I, I'm not sure. I'm not a great pool player, but I think maybe my game could improve by being on the high seas and seeing where those balls end up with the waves. Um, but I think we're probably going to end up with some lounge sort of idea. Uh, we'll see what customer feedback says, but my guess would we'll have some sort of casual area. It's not going to be as formal as the white spot service you can receive now uh, in terms of the regular dining option. But I would expect somewhere potentially you can get a beer or wine, uh, maybe a snack and enjoy those views. We'll see. We'll see what the feedback comes back with. I, I'm a strong advocate of pizza pizza. 
with my Ontario roots, and now it has some locations in British Columbia, so maybe we'll see Pizza Pizza yeah, on just, board. Just turn I, it I will into submit a... no fewer than 100 applications for Pizza Pizza through the public feedback. <laughs> Fair, you should just rent out the space and turn it into a food court. So this is possible. I, I think they're willing to explore everything. And BC Ferries with Nicholas Jimenez at the helm seemingly is more willing to listen to customers. And there are so the, the, the types of customers are so varied on ferries, right? You have regulars like those that live on the island, like myself, who rely on it to get to Metro Vancouver. You have many on the Gulf Islands who rely on it every single day. Uh, then you have those coming from Metro Vancouver to the island maybe for one or two visits a year for summer holidays. Then you have tourists. So all of those people have different expectations around ferries. And it's going to be about finding the right balance that works that's also financially sound. That They're not going to put something in that they believe is going to lose money. So it's going to take a little bit of thinking on exactly what this looks like for ferries. A lot of people say they want something with good Wi-Fi. When I spoke to the CEO, Nick Jimenez, he just said it's not possible. They've never figured out the technology to be able to actually offer uh, Wi-Fi that's consistent and reliable through that entire sailing from Swanson and Swartz Bay. And why is I wonder why that is? Why is that so difficult? We got satellites up in space, and you got yeah. Elon Musk offering pretty much uh, email anywhere, or a Wi-Fi service anywhere with with his Starlink service there, and we can't yeah. provide it on a you know a ferry ride for ninety minutes. That that I've never understood. And, and, and I've uh, never. And, and, and largely you have pretty good signal throughout. So I've never gotten it either. I think part of it is tied to cost and reliability. Um, I think that's obviously been a customer frustration for a long time as people rely on the ferry service and it's a good opportunity to work on the vessel. So, um, you know, if you put in a suggestion to improve the Wi-Fi, I'm not sure it will come back favorably. But BC Ferries is looking for lots of ideas of what to do with the, the space formerly known as the buffet. Uh, final question to you. Uh, you still have to purchase new vessels. Uh, there's always capital challenges, capital costs there. Uh, with what they're charging now, with the, with the routes that do make money, uh, how, how um, sure is the footing fiscally for, for ferries right now? What, what, do they, what do they look like when it comes to finances? It's not great, and that's why the province offered a half-billion-dollar bailout to help ensure that there weren't fare increases. And based on the independent BCC Ferries Commission, there was supposed to be a substantial fare increase based on losses, but the province stepped in to bail it out. Um, I think ferries is getting back on footing. Nick Jimenez told me in that interview that ridership numbers are now higher than they were pre-pandemic. There's a higher reliability on the service. And you and I spoke about this a few weeks ago when we talked about the fixed span. Uh, There are people moving all around the province and a lot are coming here to the island and they are relying more on the service. So uh, we will see staffing costs are going up, food costs are going up, uh, all of these costs are going up. But uh, Ferries is trying its best to balance all that and provinces there to backstop it as they work their way through this uh, time of, of inflation and all these other challenges we're facing with costs. Richard, thank you. All right, free the buffet, Jazz. That's what free I say. Free the but buffet. The buffet. Maybe we'll end up with something even cooler. There you go. Pizza, <laughs> pizza. That is Richard Zussman, Global VC's legislative report. Let's revisit uh, one of our interviews uh, yesterday. Vancouver Mayor Ken Sim joined us at three o'clock yesterday. We talked on a variety of issues. Uh, from uh, fireworks uh, for Canada Day or the lack of fireworks for Canada Day. We talked a little bit about housing issues as well. But we also talked about 
Um, the incident on April 5th when police moved in, other city officials as well, uh, removing the tent city in the downtown east side. Now, one of the issues at that time that was being that was discussed, uh, did Vancouver city officials know there wasn't enough beds to shelter people who were displaced from that Hastings Street encampment? Now, I did bring up this issue with Mayor Sim yesterday a couple of times. Take a listen to his comments in regards to were they, were they aware, was there enough space at that time uh, for those who were in that tent city to uh, be moved into city housing or provincial housing? Take a listen to his answer. First of all, uh, we did make sure that there was enough, you know, and I can't comment as to, you know, uh, what was in those emails, but I can tell you on the day of, uh, we were on the phone with the province, with BC Housing, uh, looking around, and there was you know, there was enough housing there. Um, maybe not right directly in, you know, two blocks away from the downtown east side, but throughout the system. Um, we In we, Vancouver. Yeah, in Vancouver. And so if you look at actually what happened, every single person that put up their hands uh, uh, for uh, housing got it on April 5th and April 6th. And so... Were you aware of that before the police moved in? I mean, was that conversation occurring beforehand saying, look, we're going to be moving these all these people... Uh, we better have homes for them. And you're telling me that you had enough already before you moved in? Yeah, we felt very confident. And so to give you some context, eight months before April 5th, we had been working on, you know, very... And this this happened during the previous administration. That's when it started. And it was the City of Vancouver-led, uh, City of Vancouver Engineering-led um, initiative with support through uh, with the rest of the city. But... Um, very empathetically and compassionately, we were looking for housing solutions for everyone and we were offering people housing. And I forget the actual numbers, but I think 97 or so, like, I, actually, I don't want to quote the numbers because I know I'm going to get them wrong. I don't have the data in front of me, but, you know, every uh, we housed a lot of people. And then for about two months leading up to April 5th, um, basically people um, didn't want housing. Like, they, they would refuse it. Uh, a week before April 5th, uh, we, we put the notice out um, that we're going to uh, be removing structures because now it wasn't an issue about homelessness. It was public safety. That was Vancouver Mayor Ken Sim speaking to us yesterday, uh, specifically about whether or not there was enough housing uh, available for those who are in the tent city and whether the, that was be that would be made available to them. Uh, a couple of days ago, uh, Nathan Griffiths, a data journalist for the Vancouver Sun, uh, wrote a, a fascinating article in regards to some of the things that he uncovered uh, in regards to that very conversation, and he joins us now. Nathan, thank you for speaking to us today. Thanks very much for having me. Uh, your thoughts, walk our audience through what your article basically said and what you had uncovered. Uh, sure. So I, I FOIA shortly after the uh, the city cleared the encampment of Tent City on the East Hastings. I FOIA some documents for basically uh, the mayor, um, city manager Paul Mulcrey, the the uh, engineering lead. I think Lon Leclerc, I believe his name is. Anyway, anyway several of the key uh, figures. <clears throat> involved in that and I asked for any documentation so emails uh, reports text messages etc relating to the clearing of the downtown and east side encampment I received several uh, I guess re- reports uh, you know it looked like the city was making um, 
daily or not, excuse me, not daily weekly reports showing uh, metrics on what was going on in the downtown east side in terms of the number of people looking for housing, the number of structures that were available, number of structures that have been cleared, et cetera. Mm -hmm. Um, Those documents suggested that there were uh, far more people needing housing um, than, than there were spaces available. I guess is the is the long and short of it. And, and any sense of how many shelter beds are available on any daily on a daily level uh, daily basis, or how many shelter yeah. beds were available at, on any given day? Sure. So the the on April fourth was the the most recent rep, uh, weekly situation report, and it said on uh, on April fourth on as of April fourth there were about an average of thirteen available um, shelter beds on any given day in the previous week. Now that also included about, I guess I would say about, I'm looking at the numbers here. looks like about 20 housing units um, that were available as well, which would have included things from BC housing. Mm-hmm. So looking at like, I guess you could say gener- generously about 35 beds on average were available in on the day before the city uh, decamped people on East Hastings. The number of people, According to the, the same housing metrics snapshot that the, the city had on April 4th, there were about 130 people, 128 actually specifically, were in need of housing. So there's a pretty significant gap there. So, so sorry, it was the, the, those were the 130 that were part of that encampment? That, um, that would be, uh, as, as I understand it, citywide. Citywide, right? so okay. it wouldn't have been just, yeah, it wouldn't have been just East Hastings, to be fair. Yeah, on East Hastings, there were eighty, uh, about eighty structures, tents that mm-hmm. were removed during the two days. So, we're, I think it's reasonable to to kind of assume that a, about two thirds of those hundred and thirty hundred or so people were in the um, on the East Hastings Street stretch. Although the exact numbers are hard to cut them. They're difficult to pin down, obviously. Yeah, what do you think of what the mayor had to say there? He And I had to go back to him. I just want to reiterate, when I said Vancouver, mm-hmm. he meant, I guess, Vancouver. But what I meant by that is Vancouver proper, the city he's mayor of. He says mm-hmm. there was enough space. Has he said anything like that in public before that you've heard? I mean, the city was very clear uh, that they thought there were going to be enough there housing, uh, there was going to be enough shelters, beds. All the reports that I received from that FOIA request, that I, so the the engineering department was creating reports every couple hours, giving just like status updates on what had happened. Um, and those status updates included things like how many shelter beds were available to people. Um, I, I think, I don't have the numbers just in front of me right now, I can't see them, but we're talking like city were saying like, oh, we have about six beds. We have about 10 shelter beds available. You know, we have about 13. Like there was nowhere near the number of beds needed. Mm-hmm. How, having said that, not all those beds were used. Like many people were, were not taking up. I, I think at one point there were 10. I think, on, I think on April 6th, the end of the day, if I remember correctly, they were saying there were about 10 shelter beds available but at the end of the day, and only seven of them had been used. So they weren't, you know, not all the beds uh, available were used, but still not anywhere near, um, the, there were nowhere near the number of sh- uh, housing options available for the number of people 
being displaced. Yeah, it's also interesting that, you know, even anecdotally here on this show, we, we've been hearing that you're seeing more problems in Burnaby and in Surrey, that some of these people, some of the, mm-hmm. the problems have been pushed further out. Uh, I'm not sure, sure. they yeah. found housing, but we've been hearing that uh, anecdotally uh, as well. But it, it's an interesting conversation in the sense that the mayor says, look, we did have enough housing. It was available that day, but uh, we, we haven't been able to nail down, was that actually true? He maintains it is based on information he has, but uh, it's interesting based right. on what you have here at the end of the day here's that they the day before they had 13 beds and 20 housing units right and and to be fair like that you know i was down there on both days uh, and i received a handout from the um, from city housing officials showing the list of shelter beds and there were tons of shelter beds if you were willing to go to Abbotsford or southeast vancouver right like there, there were beds available all across metro vancouver but within a you know within a reasonable uh, for someone who has to pack up effectively like a campsite's worth of gear, yeah, and 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 go somewhere like that's it's a bit maybe it it might be a bit of a stretch to say hey okay I'll I'll head out to Abbotsford or I'll head even to South Vancouver or even to whatever somewhere in in Easter or West Vancouver yeah you know, that uh, could be that's a it's a it's a, it's a lot of work it is a lot of work that's for yeah. sure Nathan thank yeah, you yeah. so much for your time really appreciate it all right thank you so much yeah. U.S.-based PGA Tour and the Saudi Arabia-backed Breakaway League Live have agreed to join forces, ending a very long and expensive running feud. The PGA Tour and Riyadh's Public Investment Fund have agreed to create a jointly managed entity to house their commercial operations and intend to seize their pending litigation. Now, uh, what many have said from this rather benign headline today is essentially uh, it's a billion-dollar play by the Saudis to control golf, period, uh, from, uh, which is you know, an entire sport. Uh, it is uh, shocking to some. Uh, others have felt like this is where it's going to go inevitably. But just to think that uh, um, a public fund uh, run by a nation has bought a sport, golf. Uh, perhaps others see it differently. The gentleman that I wanted to speak today on this issue uh, knows this issue very knows this issue very well. Is Blake Price? He's co-host of the Sakaris and Price Show at sakarisandprice.com. Blake, thank you for joining us. Anytime. How are you? Is this? Uh, I'm doing very well. Is this a, just a takeover of a sport at the end of the day by by a nation? Well, certainly the men's side, anyway. Um, the LPGA will remain its uh, its own entity, and uh, the Champions Tour as as well. So we'll that's a that's a little bit off, but it's not far off because men's golf is the biggest sector commercially of the sport, of course. So, um, yeah, that's certainly what it feels like with uh, the European Tour, now called the DP World Tour, and the PGA Tour. Being involved in this, uh, yeah, men's golf is essentially partially owned by the Saudis now. Um, it, now, for our audience, those that don't golf, uh, the, the Live Tour uh, launched, I think, it was a year ago in London, and it and it and it came in through lots of money at players, uh, and had a different format in regards to how it turned how its tournaments were run. Uh, most people thought it wouldn't last; it just had a lot of deep pocket owners, but nobody thought something like today where, where there would be a merger. Nobody was expecting that, I don't think. No, not at all. I mean, it, it has not been a commercial success by any stretch of the imagination. The question was always just going to be, how long are the Saudis okay losing money? And we knew it would be a long time. They have very deep pockets, so they were not never going to be in a hurry to shut things down here. They did this for a reason. Sports washing is a, is a thing to try to 
make uh, an entity, in this case uh, an entire government, look better than it is. Um, they've got deeper pockets than we can possibly uh, imagine. Um, but it's not, a, it's not a commercially viable thing. I mean, they are on a, a network that we barely forgot, uh, that we barely remembered existed in the, the CW, which shows reruns of 90 shows for the most part. Um, they get very poor ratings there. Nobody could tell you the name of any of the teams that are involved. There's team as a team aspect to Live Golf. They happen to have a handful, and quite literally a handful, of the very, very best golfers. So let's say five of the very best golfers on the planet that have carried this brand and have kept the pulse of it alive, at least in terms of, uh, of attention. But the pulse of it commercially was always just going to be kept alive by the Saudis for as long as they wanted to, basically. Mm-hmm. Now, the PGA is a nonprofit organization. It says it'll sanction the events uh, and will uh, we'll be governing the sport. But how long can that last when the, the deep pockets, the money, is still Saudi Arabia? Yeah, I mean that's the thing. It's you know the it was always going to be a, a, a long and dirty war here between the two entities, and um, uh, in that respect, I understand why this merger happened. Um, the timing of it, though, and how it all went down. I mean, uh, the viral clips of of the tour commissioner Jay Monahan, you know, admonishing this entity, the connections to nine eleven, all of that, mm-hmm. and then. 12 months later, we're putting those clips alongside his statement now saying how this is the greatest thing for golf and all that. So, I, I mean, it, it's, it's, it's improbable to think of. It's impossible to think that this team, the live team, has come out on top in this um, purely because of the deep pockets, but they have. Uh, despite the fact that PGA Tour had the moral high ground, had the strategic high ground, and had the players, uh, um, you know, on their side, it's, it's, it's unbelievable. It really is. I, I'm at a loss for words in a lot of ways because it's just impossible to think that this has happened. Uh, but it's sheer cowardice, and it's the sheer power of money. What does it mean for golf? Uh, I mean, you can say, look, this is a game played by very talented people, but they're far removed from... Uh, the local golf course, people who love the sport. Uh, I mean, I was just at a golf course, and I don't golf, but I was at a golf course uh, uh, this past weekend, packed, busy, people enjoying themselves, having a wonderful time. Uh, Does this have any impact on golf itself at the local level, uh, at the Canadian level? I mean, at the local level, probably not. Um, I mean, for the local golf fan, just the everyday golf fan, they're going to be happy that they can see all the best golfers in the world together in more than just a few tournaments, which was the case this year with the, a lot of the grand, you know, the major tournaments, um, excluding um, a number of the of the live golfers for uh, one reason or another. Uh, qualification points, long sorted uh, explanation. I won't get into. So they're going to be happy that they can generally view the best golfers in one place rather than have two places. But again, they weren't really watching live golf to begin with. Um, in terms of um, how we see the sport, um, well, from one angle, I think the sport gets painted even more elitist and even more out of touch. And, and that was a reputation that Tiger Woods helped them to live down uh, with minorities becoming um, a just a you know not even a thing anymore. It was just it became natural to see you know minorities on the PGA Tour. So you know all those 
pro- all that progress was made, and now I think it's going to be painted once again as an elitist, uh, whitewashed sort of sport. Um, now, though, if you can think of any positive spin to this, um, maybe there's the chance that the format of golf, you know, from 72 holes to 54, maybe there's a maybe there's an acceptance of a different kind of uh, rule set for golf. Now, I'm a traditionalist. I like four rounds of golf. I like 72 holes and live, which is the Roman numerals for 54. Um, you know, they've gone to a shorter event for the most part, just the three three days of work. Um, maybe that's better in a lot of cases for a lot of tournaments that don't grab a lot of the headlines. Uh, not every tournament is the U.S. Open. Um, maybe that's a good thing for the sport. I don't know. Uh, there could be some positive offshoots in, in, in that way, shape, and form, but it's hard to see those right now amidst all the rage of, uh, of, what's, of what's happened. You raise the issue of sports washing, and, and the Saudi uh, PIF fund, this is their sovereign wealth fund, uh, has also uh, invested in uh, Britain's um, uh, premiership as well in one of their teams there. Yep. Uh, do you Newcastle. see... Yeah, Newcastle, exactly. Uh, do you see perhaps Western leagues putting in some sort of you know, proviso that that national sovereign wealth funds do not purchase are allowing some regimes not to be able to bid on teams. Uh, I'm not sure how you would do that legally, but perhaps you can, because if it, it, I don't think it's going to end here. We've had other uh, Middle Eastern uh, economies that are based on, on fossil fuels, purchasing teams either in the, mm-hmm. in the French league and, 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 and the premiership. Um, do you think this will lead to other leagues wanting to protect themselves from big dollars coming in from sovereign wealth funds? There, there's a lot of leagues that have in their in, in their. I mean, they're private leagues, so they they and they dole out franchises. They're allowed to have rules. A lot of them have non corporate ownership rules. It has to be families that that own them. Um, so, I, I mean, I think the language could be constructed in any given league to say yes, we're not going to have um, sovereign wealth funds. You know, be a part of ownership groups. I think that's that's reasonable to expect. Now, whether or not they have the intestinal fortitude to pull that off when faced with the prospect of tens of billions of dollars that's the bigger question to me is that everybody everybody has the moral high ground when nothing's at stake but when billions of dollars are at stake boy does that moral high ground start to disappear awfully quick so um saying it and doing it um are two things entirely different once the the word billions gets thrown around you know (laughs) yeah that is that is uh, absolutely true blake thanks for your time today Well, whether you're uh, downtown or in the suburbs, there isn't a corner of the Lower Mainland where you don't see international students. In fact, Canada hosted over 800,000 international students in 2022. With so many coming to Canada, there's little doubt there are people willing to prey on them here or in their country of origin. 40% of our international students here in Canada come from India. Now, recently, hundreds of students in Vancouver and Toronto learned Canadian authorities want them deported. Now, what did they do wrong? Well, nothing except for being defrauded by an education consultant in India who created fake admission documents. Many could be deported in a couple of weeks. Joining me now to discuss the issue is Vancouver East Member of Parliament, Jenny Kwan. Ms. Kwan, thank you for joining us today. Thanks for having me. Uh, how uh, serious is this issue for these students uh, in the next week or so? Well, I think the situation is very serious for the students who are 
faced with a deportation order, the student who's been cheated uh, and uh, exploited by the crooked consultant, uh, where their student visa documents were submitted uh, and uh, they were uh, and they were altered uh, unbeknownst to them. The consequence for the students is that IRCC has now deemed that there was misrepresentation in their application. Uh, in other words, there's fraud in the application. And as a result, they are being penalized by this situation. Uh, some of them have received uh, a notice from uh, the Immigration Department indicating that they would be banned for five years for uh, any um, immigration streams to Canada, uh, and others are faced with a deportation order. It is my understanding that um, potentially there are about 700 students that could be impacted. Uh, and what I know of and what I've been made aware of is that about 150 of them are uh, faced with potentially a deportation order at this time. In the next two weeks or so, the first batch will be um, made to deport uh, or to leave Canada. So this is a very serious situation for the students uh, who's been a victim. So just to clarify here, these individuals went through what they believed was the right process. There was an education consultant in India um, who was running this scam. And the students that did come to this country, they've been here for a few years and, and they live by the rules and they've been going to school and working. That's correct. The student trusted this uh consultant. Uh, turns out this cons- consultant uh, has been engaged in a um, defrauding scam unbeknownst to them. And um, they submitted, the consultant submitted um, applications for a student visa uh, and along with it, with altered admissions letters to um, colleges or universities. Uh, and when the students got here, they didn't know. They went to the university or they were told to go to a different educational institution. Um, and they just followed the instructions of this uh, bad actor, this bad consultant. Uh, and they did their study. They finished their study. They are now applying for permanent resident status. And then they've been flagged by immigration to say that uh, they have um, uh, provided misrepresentation to immigration, mm-hmm. uh, and then as a result, they are faced with deportation. So these students are in a really bad situation. They are absolutely victims of this uh, uh, this um, defrauding scheme, and and they are being penalized by uh, the immigration department. What's to say about our system that should this not have been flagged? right away when these individuals came to this country and been dealt with. I mean, is, is that not a, a, a commentary to a certain degree on the fact that we, are, we have found that this has occurred, but after the fact, and these students have been, as you say, going to school, graduated, working here uh, as students, um, uh, hoping to get their permanent residency, uh, and it's taken this long for us or the system to find out that there was a scam going on from this individual in India. Well, there's no question that IRCC, you know, throughout the different stages of the uh, student going through the process, this should have been flagged. But the reality is that uh, it wasn't. 
and it missed at every stop. IRCC did not get it. CBSA did not get it. Them coming through um, to uh, through the airport, uh, it was not caught at any of the stage until this last stage when they apply for their permanent resident status. Uh, and so there's definitely a question to be asked to say, how did this happen uh, and what can be done to prevent this from happening ever again? With that being said, for the students impacted though, the real question before the government right now is this. Will the government stay the deportation orders for these students who are just victims of this uh, scheme? Uh, and then the other situation, of course, for the students, for them to have on their immigration file that they misrepresented uh, because of fraud, will the government waive that misrepresentation uh, 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 issue? Because as long as they have that misrepresentation issue, they won't be admissible for any other immigration streams here in Canada. So waiving that inadmissibility due to misrepresentation is absolutely key, and will the government do that? And finally, these students, oh my goodness, it is just so terrible. They have, they've paid big money to this uh, uh, crooked consultant. Uh, they've paid money to the consultant for the education that they never received from these uh, colleges that they were supposedly admitted to. Money that they can now not recoup back. One student told me he paid close to seventeen, eighteen thousand dollars uh, for that tuition fee for the year for that institution that he never went to. He then went to a different institution, uh, and then he paid tuition for that. So he's paid double for his education. Uh, and so now these students are just, you know, beyond despair with what's happening to them. Uh, and so which is why I'm calling on the government to make the students whole and to give them a permanent residence uh, pathway. It could be through a uh, humanitarian compassionate uh, stream. It could be through the government's own sort of uh, broad regularization scheme that they're embarking on uh, for many people who are already here for temporary students, for temporary uh, foreign workers, or people who are out of status. So the government can actually uh, ensure sure that the suffering that the students have been subjected to uh, and the fraud that they've been a victim of can be uh, addressed as best as they can with those three measures that the NDT is calling for. Uh, does it not also, isn't, this, isn't that also a commentary beyond the fact that these documents, we finally found out that they were, um, as I said, a, a fraud um, near the end of this conversation, number one. Number two, these colleges that are set up, do we not need greater scrutiny in some of these colleges that are set up? Because they seem to be immigration mills at the end of the day, not educational institutions, but specifically set up as a gateway for these immigrants to come and to pay exorbitant amounts in some cases for tuition. In some cases, as we saw here, they didn't even exist. Is that on a commentary also on cracking down on some of these private colleges that have been set up? Well, I've been long uh, been a proponent to say that there needs to be better, better regulation with private institutions. Uh, no question about that, and that needs to be done. In this instance, what we're talking about here is this. We have a crooked consultant who created these uh, fraudulent documents. They apparently doctored up uh, admissions letters for uh, various institutions. So the student who used this uh, bad actor believed that they were admitted to this school. They did not know that they weren't. They even 
and you know uh, made payment uh, for, uh, for for this education uh, to this uh, Crooked consultant. Lo and behold, when they come to Canada, they discovered that um, uh, in some instances that that school never admitted them, or they don't know why exactly why they can't get the education there. They were just told by the uh, bad actor to go to a different institution. Many of them just follow that direction. They don't know any different, so they just follow the direction and went to a different institution. And now at the end of the stage, they discover that they've been a victim of fraud all along. Um, and so, yes, there is a question as to how come it took so long for this to be discovered? And why didn't the government at any point in time flagged the situation? Uh, and, and so that's definitely something that needs to be addressed going forward, no question, and, to, and needs to be addressed to say what happened here with this fiasco. But with that being said, there are a group of students who's been victims. The government, the Minister of Immigration, already said that he's not going to penalize them. Not penalizing them means this, that the government, A, needs to ensure that the deportation is stayed so that those students can stay here. And only the Minister of Public Safety or the federal court can do that. And so, um, short of the federal court, the Minister of Public Safety needs to uh, stay these deportations for these students. Second, because on the record, these students have the inadmissibility on the basis of misrepresentation on their file because of the fraud that was committed by the Crooked Consultant, unbeknownst to them. So what we need the government to do is to waive this inadmissibility on the basis of misrepresentation. So that is not on their file going forward. And then finally, what the students want and what they've been working towards is to get their education, contribute to Canada. They have been contributing to Canada. And ultimately, what they want is to stay in Canada to establish their career here in Canada. So we need to give them that pathway for permanent resident status instead of turning them away and saying to them that uh, that they have defrauded the system and we're now going to de de uh, deport you. That is just so wrong. And so the government needs to do the right thing by the students uh, and to make sure that they are not the victims here and that they're not being punished for the fraud that they have been subjected to. Ms. Kwan, thank you for your time today. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to the Jazz Joe Hall Show podcast. Don't forget to subscribe to the show on Apple or Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can always listen to the Jazz Joe Hall Show live Monday to Friday from 3 to 6 p.m. on 980 CKNW and connect with me on Twitter at Jazz Joe Hall BC. Talk to you next time.